0: of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality
1: they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Headlines. Hosting the show today in the studio, our worldwide virtual studio, we have, as usual, Joe. Hi there. Neil. Hi everyone. elan Hello. And I'm Harrison. And we're going to be talking about what a kind of crazy week it's been in the news and um, some big things have happened in the past week, and even carrying over from the week before that with Brexit. But I think the, the biggest news this week, at least, is coming out of Turkey. And that has to do with a couple of things. First of all, it started on Monday with the announcement from the Russian, uh, Russian media and uh, the Kremlin that pr- uh, Turkish President Erdogan had sent a letter to... I don't know if it was addressed uh, just to Putin or Russian people or who it was actually addressed to. I think it was just Putin. But essentially apologizing for the shoot-down of the Russian jet in November of last year, which has led to um, the kind of seven-month total downturn in relations between Turkey and Russia, which has had some negative effects on the Turkish side, which probably had something to do with the apology. But anyways, this apology gets sent, and... Just immediately, as soon as it makes the news, um, like Gazprom says, oh, well, you know, we're totally open to, to restarting uh, the Turkish Stream project. And um, Putin goes public and makes some statements and says, oh, yeah, this is a great thing. Uh, we look forward to, you know, seeing what happens of this. And in pretty much all of the Russian media and most even Western media, Everyone was kind of talking about this as an apology and an official apology, and there was pretty much pretty much only um, some Turkish outlets and the the new Turkish prime minister who replaced Davutoglu. um, I can't remember his name. It's like Yildirim, I think. I can't pronounce it. But um, he comes out and says, "Oh no, this wasn't an apology. Um, He didn't. He he just said he expressed uh, regret or something. Uh, I mean, really semantics." And then Putin's press secretary. Dmitry Pes- Peskov says, well, actually, I'm a Turkologist. I know Turkish, and uh, he did apologize. It's an exact, you know, it's a perfect translation from Turkish to Russian. And so there was this kind of confusion for a bit, but then it just kind of completely died down, and it uh, it looks like it just kind of took off from there as this official apology, and everyone kind of either explicitly or tacitly acknowledged it as such. And um, the Turkish... And Russian foreign ministers, Sergei Lavrov, and um, this Kasufolu, Kavusoglu um, met in Sochi and had a talk where they pretty much agreed on everything and said, you know, everything's fine and dandy. And we're, uh, Russia and Turkey are going to, first of all, reestablish diplomatic ties and then collaborate on trade and ec- economic deals. And then Russia pretty much the next day um, lifted the ban on tourism, and uh, I don't know if they have or n- have yet or not lifted the the sanctions on Turkish produce, but that should be happening pretty soon. And Kavusolu and Lavrov essentially said they agree pretty much on all matters relating to terrorism in Syria, um, that they agree on which groups are to be classified as terrorists. Um, like, pretty much, like, on almost all of them. So there may be some kind of details um, that they are still hashing out, but that they, and that Lavrov said that they're going to be working closely and making sure that the border is taken care of and that they're going to to be taken care of, um, you know, uh, stopping the transfer of terrorists and stuff across the border. And anyways, this was just, like, in just a few days, you see at least publicly, all of these kind of totally about-faces on Turkey's part, where previously they, of course, Erdogan had absolutely uh, refused to apologize. Turkey has been the biggest covert and now pretty much overt um, supporter of terrorism in Syria, and they've been pretty much just totally kind of going at it alone, at least that's how it appears in the news, and I think maybe that's a, one of the reasons why this uh, why this apology came about is because it was looking like Turkey was increasingly isolated and self-isolated because, first of all, there were the relations with Russia that went south because of shooting down the jet. Then there's the the increasing um, animosity between the EU and Turkey over the refugee deal and Turkey wanting to get these the visa-free access to Europe and you know, their eventual, um, what do they want, like EU status or something like that sometime in the future. And that went downhill. And then, of course, there's Erdogan's completely kind of genocidal policy against the Kurds. And then on top of that, you have the US then supporting, giving even more support to the Kurds in northern Syria and the US special forces and also British, French and German um, all being reported in northern Syria, helping the uh, what are they called, the Syrian Democratic Forces, um, this group of mo- mostly Kurds but also Arabs and um, just anti-ISIS fighters in the north that crossed the Euphrates, um, which was um, Erdogan's red line, he said, and are fighting um, and taking, taking back territory from ISIS along the border. And so Erdogan has been freaking out because he doesn't want that northern region of Syria all um, controlled by Kurds. And so there's that going on, and of course the the sanctions and the loss of tourism has um, affected negatively affected the Turkish economy, so they're losing money, there's chaos in the country, they don't have any friends anywhere, so, I mean, the Erdogan's entire policy was just falling apart and not really resulting in anything positive that you could see for Turkey. So, um, at least, I don't know, for me, where it's... Uh, what it looks like right now is that he didn't really have Turkey didn't really have any more options and Russia seemed the best bet. Now from now, from this point on um, we've seen that Turkey has been kind of saying all the right things, at least from a Russian perspective that they're, they're in total agreement on all these things. And so I guess now it's just a matter of seeing whether they actually back any of that up with actual actions because, you know, like I just mentioned, until this point, Turkey hasn't really been doing any of that. They've been at least putting on a show of of fighting ISIS. But usually, when they say they're fighting ISIS, they just use as, as use that as an excuse to bomb the Kurds in northern Syria. Um, there have been reports that they have that uh, Turkish military has attacked ISIS in Syria on various occasions across the border. Um, And um, but just if you read these statements coming out of the Turkish Turkish officials, they're saying now, oh, yeah, we're totally serious about fighting terrorism and uh, and fighting ISIS. And then, you know, keeping all that in mind, the day after um, this letter was announced in the news, we had the um, the attacks in Istanbul, which is a whole other topic. But um, maybe before we get into the Istanbul attacks, um, does anyone want to chime in with anything on this whole Turkey-Russia renewal of relations?
1: Well,
3: yes, Alan? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Go ahead, Joe.
3: (laughs) You got got the well in there before I got the sigh, so Uh, take it away, Joe. Uh
1: yeah. Aside, I think
0: Asai Trumps a well. is more
3: more, more appropriate.
1: Um, it's uh, it's really. I mean, I don't know. It's it's hubris, obviously. I mean, what do you, what do you say when when you see uh, the the political leader, the president, or prime minister, or whatever of a fairly really big uh, country um, that's directly involved has been directly involved in this. Fight against ISIS in one way or another—that uh, has been occupying everybody's minds over the past few years—and you take this high-profile politician or, or politicians, and you watch them in the space of uh, a number of months completely reverse course on what they were so adamant about several months ago. I mean, mm-hmm. these people are just—they've um, uh, lost uh, credibility, really. Uh, but of course, it seems that you don't really need to have credibility to be a politician Uh, these days. In fact, the less you have, the better you do for some reason. Um, But yeah, my my impression is that, you know, this was just hubris really on the part of the Turks, Erdogan Erdogan and his people uh, who thought that they could be uh, a kind of equal player in the whole Syria situation where they thought they could Hold their hold their own effectively against uh, between almost uh, the U.S. and Russia and strike out and do their own thing, which was securing, you know, uh, Turkish the Turkish border and maybe even expanding their influence into Turkey and Iraq, uh, primarily as you were saying, Harrison, to kind of uh, keep the Kurds down, you know, which have been a a long term threat uh, to this to the to the Turkish. Uh, establishment, mm-hmm. uh, because of their desire to have you know their own country either in Turkey or in part of Turkey and Syria and Iraq and even Iran. So that's been the agenda, and I, I suppose Erdogan and his people thought they could <clears throat> they could mix it up there with the rest with the big boys type thing, mm-hmm. and they seem to have uh, fallen flat on their face and got a bunch of egg on it at the same time, and have to eat. Ate a bunch of crow now, um, so it's pure hub- hubris, yeah. And, and then the apology business was so ridiculous, you know. I mean, <laughs> you apologize for something, but then you don't want to look weak, quote unquote, by apologizing. So you have to say, "Well, it wasn't really an apology." Uh, so, so you're kind of like you're saying, "Listen, okay, Putin, look, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to do that." And the Turkish public is saying, "Did you just say sorry?" "No, no, no, I didn't say sorry." And, and Putin's like, "What? What do you mean you didn't say sorry?" No, no, I did say sorry, Putin. I'm not talking to you. I mean, I'm talking to the public here. No, I didn't say sorry. I told them what was going on, and they backed down. <clears throat> what do you mean? You, ba- you didn't say that to me, Erdogan. Look, Putin, can you just stay out of this? I'm talking to the Turkish public here. I'm still a strong leader. I don't apologize to anybody, Turkish people. I'm strong. But you apologize to me, Erdogan. Shut up, Putin. Stop. Stop interfering in my propaganda piece here it's just nonsense i mean that's i mean that's what you're dealing with you know um, it's a, a a very transparent and rather pathetic charade that, that they're putting on here you know i mean it'd be nice i mean if if we lived in a world where at the level of uh, political power brokers uh, apologies sincere apologies could be given mm-hmm. uh, and it wouldn't make you or you the people who giving the people giving them uh, genuinely, wouldn't uh, feel that uh, that it makes them look weak. That in fact, it makes them look strong. And in fact, uh, uh, done in a certain way and done by a certain person, uh, an apology obviously does and can be a sign of of strength. And, um, and you know, admitting you're admitting you're wrong takes a certain um, a certain amount of strength and uh, and humility, which are qualities that uh, all any leader should have, um, but uh, I suppose we're dealing with some kind of character disturbed or psychopathic types here who don't really subscribe to that that idea or don't have those qualities Mm -hmm. and don't value those qualities, you
2: know? Um, Well, yeah, and that's... Well, I think that the the Russians in this case seem to understand that, and I think that's the reason behind their... um, the way they've been approaching this whole wider situation in Syria and how they've been, um, for example, like it wasn't until the the shoot down of the jet that Russia started going public with all this information about Turkey's involvement with like the ISIS, Mm -hmm. oil trade and funneling fighters and supplies over the border. I mean, all this stuff was reported on, but it was mostly in like opposition newspapers and alternative media. And it was never really Never really mainstream. I mean, mainstream media did talk about it, but, but it wasn't really a focus or, you know, it wasn't given a lot of attention. Um, but in general, the way that Rus- the Russians seem to be approaching it has been to to not really expose too much of their friends or enemies' like dirty laundry and to give them every opportunity to kind of save face and just change their policy um, without having to... Um, admit to the fact that they're just duplicitous, psychopathic murderers, and you know that will be that would be good enough for Russia. Like so, that, I mean that's that's been this ever since the, the Russians went into Syria. That's been what they've been doing is is giving the the U.S. primarily the opportunity to um, to actually live up to its own propaganda and and cooperate in this real you know, war on terrorism in Syria. And mm-hmm. the, the the Americans just rejected it every time, or they, you know, they might say that they, uh, well, you no, know, I think they just, they reject it every time. They don't even make really any uh, any attempt to appear to want to cooperate with Russia. Well, there's a recent example, but we'll get into that later. Um, but, it, so it seems like uh, that's th- that's been the same approach that's been taken with Turkey, only Turkey, at least at this point, has appeared to take that offer. So they've been... Uh, you know they want to to save face. They want they want to preserve their image. Erdogan wants to preserve his image as the guy that never apologizes. And Putin's just like, okay, well, sure. You know, do whatever you want to do as long as you pretty much do what I want you to do, which is stop supporting terror and and help actually help out uh, in the wider conflict. So it's it. Uh, I think that the Russian policy is to take into account that pretty much everyone in the world in politics is uh, backstabbing. Selfish three-year-old serial killer, Mm. and just manipulate them and let them do whatever you know. Let them say whatever they want, you know. As long as and do it in such a way that they can preserve their self-image and their hold on power. As long as their policies kind of go in 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 a direction that would be good for Russia, and in this Mm. case, for example, in Syria, that means by extension that it would actually be good for the world because uh, the Russian motives in Syria are actually. Good for Syria, good for everyone in the region, and when you expand that out, it actually is kind of the best policy available at the moment to, to these people involved. Now, just a, a little bit of background: I think that the that the this um, this kind of thawing of of relations with Turkey and Russia, it actually it's been it didn't come out of nowhere. I think there have been some hints about it kind of um, going on, bubbles up um, from behind the scenes. Over the past few months, I mean, just in um, on March 30th, for example. So this was this was a few months ago, um, and this was you know several months after the shootdown of the jets, So Turkey and, and Russia at that time still had pretty poor relations, but there was a Russian military delegation that was sent to Turkey, and so they had this official meeting. Now it wasn't any kind of High-level people like you know the foreign minister or the defense minister or anything. It was just a, a military delegation, but that was that was on March 30th, and then on April 1st, the day uh, a couple of days after that, um, Al-Parslan-, Al- Alparslan Celik, who was the guy, the the Turkish um, kind of gray wolf guy that was posing as a Turkman in Latakia, and who took responsibility for. Shooting the pilot, his group in in Syria shot down the pilot and killed him in Latakia. That he was arrested. So like two days after this meeting in March, and that that um, the arrest of this guy Chelik, um, that seems to be an issue that's now relevant. Well, kind of immediately to the situation that's that's a- at present because um, the day after the the apology, um, Chelik's trial. Um, kind of entered its its second stage in in uh, in Turkey. So first of all, when he was arrested in April, um, the charges um, relating to to the, the pilot Oleg Peshkov who was killed, um, were dropped because they said they didn't have evidence. They reviewed the video, and you know they didn't have any reason to to charge him with the, with this murder. And so he was being held on a whole bunch of other charges like um, um, illegal possession of certain weapons and some fraud charges. And so now they're renewing these charges of fraud against this guy. And uh, there's even been talk that they might go after him for the murder of... One of the rescue pilots that went out to to rescue the surviving pilot from that jet. So there was, you know, the the, the Russians and the um, and some of their Syrian <clears throat> allies in in Latakia sent out this rescue mission to to retrieve this second pilot. And um, one of the helicopter pilots was killed in the in battles with the, the the kind of the rebels in the region, which led to the to the Iranian um, Al Quds force. You know, sending out their guys to help help uh, rescue all those guys. But, anyways, so it looks like that Celik may be a kind of um, well, kind of like a pawn on this chessboard, and it we'll see what happens with his trial. But that might have something to do with um, with what's been going on, because it seems like the the Turks are now at least more willing to to use their their justice department to. Um, to charge this guy with something, and that may, may be a kind of like gesture to the Russians that, well, hey, look, we're, we're doing something to uh, to get back at this guy who had admitted to shooting down um, this pilot. But then again, just to add one more thing about this Chelik guy, the day after he was arrested, he sent a letter from prison to the Russian foreign ministry Basically saying, oh, you know, we should have negotiations and the fighting should stop. And uh, um, so that was kind of weird <coughs> that this child guy would, would do that immediately after arrested, after he was arrested. Maybe kind of saying, oh, please, you know, don't don't hurt me. I'm sorry, but uh, I don't want to. Well, be- he, uh,
0: yeah, he, um, well, he was speaking to the fact that it's a, it's a proxy war between,
1: mm-hmm.
0: one element is a proxy war between Turkey and Russia.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That's why all this charade is going on, because the two countries are at war, kind of.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but not anymore. Apparently. 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 This anymore. week. But that's because they're not at war anymore, because um, I think the uh, Turks have... Uh, it's become clear to the, to the Turkish government that they're not big enough, that they can't play in that, uh, in that big boys' game... To, Effectively, that they've been uh, caught between the U.S. and NATO, for example, and uh, and Russia, that they're they're going to lose. That they're just a pawn. Turkey has been used as a pawn. That they're not powerful enough to hold their own between those two, and they better pick a side. And um, but the, the guy who is guy who uh, is, is accused of shooting down the, the plane and killing the the Russian pilot, um, I'd say Russia definitely wants him to be prosecuted because that would be an official. Uh, process uh, by the Turkish government to prosecute this guy, which would kind of definitively and legally show that they uh, do not stand behind uh, the shooting down. They they are not trying to justify, it and they don't want to justify the shooting down. Of course, the first step in that was the apology, saying we didn't mean to do it. Sorry, it was wrong. We never intended to do that. Whatever. It's a very interesting wording that they that the Turks used for the apology that they never intended to, to do it. You know. Mm -hmm. what do you mean you never intended to do it? I mean, you did it. (laughs) Were you drunk or something? Or maybe someone else else did it on your behalf and you weren't fully aware of it, which is what I kind of said at the time, what I wrote about at the time, that Mm -hmm. uh, possible idea was that um, that the Turkish government, at least uh, Erdogan and and those people, didn't really know what was going on and they only found out after the fact Mm. uh, that someone had been shot down and then they were left kind of Holding the bloody knife, if you know what I mean, someone stuck it in the hand. So there you go, what are you going to do now? Yeah. Well, uh, the um, the response of Erdogan to to this apology suggests that he's uh, you know that he's a, a rather pathetic character who's only concerned with his own image and his own power. Uh, the way he you know is trying to pretend that well, it wasn't really an apology, he doesn't even have the cojones to turn around, and turn, stand up, and say, okay, it was an apology. You know, I mean, he sends an apology to Russia and then tries to tell everybody it wasn't an apology. It's just an idiot, you know. Um, so that that kind of personality trait or that character type that he is um, would uh, suggest that in the situation where he is put in this position, Erdogan and, and whoever at the time, the prime minister, uh, are put in a position where they're told, look, you just shut down a Russian plane. What are you going to do? Well, they'll have to stand up. That kind of person wouldn't being being put on the spot in that way wouldn't just say we didn't do it with someone else you know they wouldn't they would feel like they had to um uh, own it effectively and that's what they did you know initially afterwards they 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 were quite arrogant about it and uh, said well tough shit, that's what happens whatever you know um but now they've done a complete reversal because they've realized what the what the facts on the ground are type of thing and, and that, like i said they're not really able to hold their own in this conflict and they're going to lose basically they're a pawn turkey has always been a pawn uh for it's been a pawn for the u.s for a long time to whatever extent the u.s could could make it a a pawn of nato for example but at the same time there's the call of russia the obvious call of russia all the time and they've been trying to sit between two stools you know but they end up being a stool pigeon basically (laughs) a dupe you know and uh, they only they only find out after the fact and then they have to it's just a pathetic, a whole pathetic show, you know, really when you see uh, the Turkish government acting this way. And, and they're totally, they obviously there's no respect for Turkey and for the Turkish government. And I don't think there should be. And that's not saying that, you know, um, there's no respect for Turkey in the EU or in NATO or in the US. The only little bit of respect being offered to them is from Russia. Hmm. But they have to act respectably. That Russia demands that they act respectably. Whereas uh, NATO and the West, sim- yeah, NATO and the West simply want to use them uh, um, uh, to exploit them effectively in whatever way they can to, to against Russia, and that's why I think uh, there's a good chance that <clears throat> uh, Turkey was put in this position. If you just look at it from the point of geopolitics and the way the US has operated for so long, it would very much be in 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 keeping with US foreign policy, duplicitous, conniving, Machiavellian foreign policy to um, force Russia or to to destroy. Not Russia to destroy uh, Turkish-Russian relations. I mean, it's absolutely in the interest of the US and NATO, <laughs> uh, Washington, London, whatever, to set Turkey and Russia against each other. Mm-hmm. And, the, and this is- if all if all that Turkish was, was having, you know, one of the having a NATO plane take off from one of the NATO air bases, effectively in Turkey, and fly up and from inside the Turkish border shoot down the Russian plane in Syria and then just disappear again, well then no problem, you know, done, sold. It really does, you can imagine someone does that, you know, I mean it's a real setup, it's it, it's very much in keeping, you know, imagine yourself in that position, you know, where you're standing there in the middle of a fight or something, someone, not, a, not part of the fight, runs in all of a sudden, you know, camouflaged or something, stabs someone, that you're in the immediate environment with and then sticks a knife in your pocket and runs away. And then everybody comes and says, what's going on here? And you're going, uh, uh, that, there was a guy, uh, did that. Right. But you're holding a knife. No one's going to believe it. It wasn't, wasn't me, I swear. That, I mean, they're smart enough to know not to come out with that kind of nonsense. So given the, given the situation put in that position, which is a rock and a hard place, yeah, Turkey had to own it, basically, own the shoot down. But now they're not owning it anymore. Mm-hmm. Go figure. So what what's the deal? Was it a moment of madness? Are they that stupid? Maybe you could go with a moment of madness that they just were angry that Russia was bombing their people or something, their terrorists in, in, in Syria or something, and decided to shoot down a plane? I doubt it. You know? I think it's the the, the, the scenario that I
3: that I posited at the time was is, is is more likely.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, it, it just seems like in the months since the shoot down, uh, a few of these Turkish leaders got together in a room and they said, oh my God, our economy is tanking because of uh, these Russian economic uh, maneuvers. They're, uh, they're basically uh, routing the terrorists in Syria. And for goodness sake, we could actually be doing some legitimate business with uh, all of um, the alliances that russia and china have been kind of forming in the past few years uh gee i don't know should i support should i should i continue making money from uh, oil that isis is bringing into the country or do i want to have some kind of legitimate uh kind of long lasting um uh, business relationship that uh that doesn't force me to to behave this way so, mm-hmm. the possibility exists that maybe some cooler heads prevailed there um, yeah you know uh, and and it's and, yeah it's
1: not just the economy it's the economy and like the economic measures Russia took against Turkey, but also I think the whole point the whole reason that Turkey is involved in this situation in the first place is because they're trying to. You know, like I said, you know, mix it up and get in there and be, be a major player in Syria and, and work things out to actually craft things or create things or create facts on the ground in Turkey. And they simply don't have the ability to do that, you know, between, uh, stuck between Russia, the Russian military forces, which are much more, much bigger and much uh, more effective in, in, in Syria and the U.S. involvement, the U.S. and NATO involvement, uh, Turkey, I think, has finally realised not only that it can't really do, achieve very much uh, on its own, but that and, that and that therefore it has to pick a side, to one of these sides, either Russia or, or the West or NATO. And it's looked, it's taken the, the past six or nine months or so to figure out that it can't rely on uh, NATO to uh, back it up effectively in what Turkey wants to do in Syria. So. And probably the, the Russians have made them a better offer, which is basically, listen, we can work something out uh, with the whole Kurdish situation. Uh, that's to your, you know, that, that that you'll accept. That's acceptable to you, but um, you know, you have to you have to pick a side. Basically, you have to come out officially on one side or the other, at, at least uh, to to some extent. And um, like you, you were saying earlier on, Harrison, the the, the U.S. seems to be very much uh, involved in, or very much interested in using. The Kurds for its own agenda, and that doesn't mean, and that effectively means uh, siding with the Kurds or helping the Kurds, and that's the last thing Turkey wants to see. So Turkey's probably pretty pissed off that NATO has been uh, effectively helping, the US has been helping out the Kurds, which is, uh, you know, the Turkish government's arch enemy type thing. And so the the penny has finally dropped for them. They've finally cottoned down the fact that, you know, yeah, it's either just walk away and do nothing or, uh, or, or side with Russia effectively, you know, and the first and the the requirement for the siding with Russia was um to issue this apology. That was a big thing. Um and, and take it from there. But it's you could also look at it from the point of view if you wanted to get really conspiratorial you could uh, you could suggest that uh, Russia organised the shoot down of its own plane and blame Turkey for it. To put Turkey in, a, in an impossible position where it has to actually, where it's going to suffer the consequences, unless it apologizes for it and effectively sidled, you know, cozies up to Russia, you know? But I don't think that's the case. Um, but it's interesting because that's exactly what uh, it looks like if, if this scenario is correct, where the Turks didn't really sanction the shoot down of that plane and that it was a NATO operation to set Russia against, or set Turkey against Russia. Um, then at this point it looks like it's gone wrong. Uh, yeah, Russia has yet again undone the plot and the plots and uh, the plan of uh, the NATO plan to, to sour relationships forever or whatever for a long time between Turkey and Russia. And now it's turned out, turns out that uh Turkey's apologizing to Russia, and all sanctions are being lifted, and we're going to cooperate. They're even going to get you know, Rosneft says we're going to get the South Stream, the Turkish Stream. uh, uh, pipeline back online and I mean that's all it's, going, it's all gone wrong inspector you know
2: mm-hmm. and then mixed into all of this you know as I just briefly mentioned earlier the day after the apology we have this terror attack in Istanbul so maybe we can talk about that and how it how it fits in because well, I think it's I, I, first of all just I think the timing was really interesting that you have this attack. So far, no one has officially claimed responsibility, but everyone, everyone is saying that it's ISIS. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you have um, the Turkish politicians, um, American politicians, analysts. Like I said, everyone saying, "Oh, this is this bears all the hallmarks of a of an ISIS attack." Now for, that's interesting, first of all, because if you look at the 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 so-called terror attacks that have happened in Turkey over the past year or two pretty much after every immediately after every one the Turks come out and say that this was either the PKK or ISIS. And you know, regardless of whether Turkey themselves organized these or or what, it's always they, they bring in the P, the PKK. Got to get the Kurds in there. But in this one I I haven't seen I don't well there may be but I haven't seen any kind of Um, speculation that it was PKK. Pretty much from the get-go, everyone was saying, no, this doesn't match PKK's um, MO. They target police and military. And I thought that was interesting because they were basically saying that the PKK only targets (laughs) military and police, which makes sense, and that's probably the case. Anytime you have a a terror attack that just randomly goes after civilians, there's another agenda going on. And, um, And when the PKK... Takes responsibility for those. It's not actually the PKK. It's that group. uh, I can't remember their name. They're the that splinter that splinter group of the mysterious splinter group of the PKK that no one really knows who they are, where they came from, which is very suspicious to say the least. But anyways, we have this attack. Apparently, these three guys um, get in a cab in Istanbul Um, now from. Uh, well, Sabelle Edmonds had this had this little update. Of course, she speaks Turkish, so she's been following all the Turkish news, a lot of which hasn't been translated. But from what she's pieced together from the t- accounts in the Turkish press, the the official story so far, even then, it doesn't really make sense. So apparently these three guys got in a cab um, with um, a big suitcase full of stuff, who knows what. Well, we, we can... Uh, we can guess now what was in the suitcase, but they were wearing they just t-shirts like or or you know nothing, they weren't wearing any jackets or anything when they got in the cab now when they got to the airport, apparently they get out of the cab and um the Istanbul airport ataturk is one of the biggest airports in europe it's it's massive and there is massive uh, security and surveillance at the airport you've got you've got cameras everywhere, and there's actually three levels of Of security, so you've got to go through basically like your airport security three times: once to just get into the airport, then once to get past, you know, um, your check-in gate, and then once more um, once you're past that. So it's three levels of security. So these guys get out of their cab, and and apparently this is what at least this is what they're saying in the Turkish press because the no CCTV footage has been released. But they get out of their cab, and then they open up their suitcase right. Right at the entrance to the, you know, the, I think it was the international gates, uh, the entrance there, they open their suitcase, they, they put on these explosive vests, they put on their jackets, and they get out their their, um, their Glocks and their uh, Kalashnikovs, and then they, they head into the, the airport. So right there, that, that doesn't really make sense. I'd be interested in seeing some actual translations there, because, um, like I said, this is one of the biggest, busiest airports, so these guys just kind of get out of their cab and then start... Like, taking out explosives from this this um, luggage and getting these guns out? I mean, right right in the middle of all these people entering and leaving the airport? That's kind of suspicious. But anyways, so that apparently happens. They get in, they start shooting people, they throw grenades, and then apparently they all blow themselves up. And 43 or 44 people now have have died, over 200 injured in the hospital, and, um, that's pretty much, you know, that's, that's the story so far. Like I said, no one has officially claimed responsibility, but there have been, you know, um, oh, there's pretty much universal speculation that it's been ISIS and that, uh, uh I don't, I, I don't think that, I don't, I don't even think that any of the kind of semi-official ISIS news outlets have, have said anything about responsibility. We'll just have to wait and see. But, you know, that's pretty much all we know one- now. Oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, there's one video, I don't know if anybody's seen it, of a guy, one of these uh, attackers in the airport, he's running through the the check-in area or something, it's a big kind of wide open area, but apparently there's some, the, he must have been shooting or something kind of off camera, uh, you just see everybody in that area kind of running towards mm-hmm. uh, the camera, the security, security camera, and disappearing underneath it basically, and then within about 20 or 30 seconds, this guy <laughs> comes running around. And uh, you see him in the distance, getting closer and closer, and he's just running around. He's kind of frantically looking for someone to uh, apparently someone, some targets, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's nobody. Everybody's left, you know. So he runs one direction, and he runs another direction, and he actually he seems to get a bit uh, frustrated, and he throws his gun on the ground in yeah, front of him. He, and he picks it up again. And then he pick, and he picks it up again and storms off. Um, and then so yeah, uh, not exactly your kind of professional. And a hired assassin type behavior right there, but um, uh, again, I mean, you know, there's, I think there's a mix and in, inside these terror attacks, there's a mix between, and, and here I'm talking about, you know, terror attacks in the US, terror attacks in Europe, in Paris, in and, and Brussels, and then elsewhere uh, in Turkey, in the Middle East. Uh, there's a mixture there, depending on the specific uh, instance, there's a mixture of uh, people who are actually just facilitated actual jihadis obviously ISIS as it, as it's called does actually exist as a as this kind of you know group that uh, acts as an attractor for this disenfranchised not disenfranchised uh, uh, disillusioned or generally just uh, a bunch of uh, you know psychopathic kind of uh, ne'er-do-well uh, Muslim types or wannabe Muslim jihadi types who just have nothing else to do uh, and decide to go to syria or iraq and, and sign up and uh there you know there is a a means uh, an opportunity there to take a few of the most gullible of those k- kinds of people who have been trained to use guns and stuff mm-hmm. and just ship them across borders mm-hmm. and uh, land them you know tell them get them to agree and they're, they're probably happy to do it you know there are fanatical people basically. Who can be indoctrinated in this way, or will do it just because of their own type of their own their own nature or their own character? Who will be will have you know drunk, drank the kool aid, drank the jihadi kool aid effectively, mm-hmm. and um, and decide they want to go and kill some kill some people, you know, yeah. uh, kill some infidels, non-believers. So you can get those people, and, you, and it's pretty easy, I'm sure, to uh, to ship them to whatever destination you want, and have them walk into an airport, and
2: especially Turkey. You know. I mean, cause I <laughs> yeah,
1: that's where they're coming from. Right. Uh, and then on the, on the other hand, then you have uh, different terror attacks that are much more clinical, much more uh, kind of uh, organized. They don't involve any of the attackers throwing their guns down type thing, and certainly not usually caught on camera either. Um, mm-hmm. That involve uh, a couple of Patsy type characters who are brought in who end up just being the patsies, being the fault guys, get blamed on them, but there's clearly more more people involved who never get caught and never get mentioned. So there's a kind of a a couple of different variations or a few different variations of these kind of attacks that can happen you know mm-hmm. um, yeah well but yeah it's 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 interesting in terms of just the the timing of it as you said uh, putting pressure internal pressure i mean it's a real blunt instrument, but it's what the uh, western powers have used for for centuries really um, mm-hmm. where if they want to put pressure on a particular government they will uh, or, or destabilize it in some way, they use this kind of blunt instrument of simply carrying out mass civilian casualty attacks within the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And that's it. That's, it's, a mean, it's an end in itself. It's, it's almost not even a means to an end, except that maybe it just puts pressure on the local government, but it doesn't have any particular agenda other than just, okay, hit those people, hit them again, hit them again, you know?
3: Yeah. And it, it just seems, uh, given what you were saying about the timing, Joe, that, uh, that this is this is a kind of um, maybe a, a kind of enraged statement on the part of uh, the West we don 't like you talking to russia we yeah. don 't like you trying to don 't even think about it don 't even think about it and and uh, remember terrorism you know <laughs> re- remember what it is
2: you 're supposed to be doing over there, or we'll bomb you with your own terrorists which is funny because i don 't think that Well, really on the personal, like emotional level, I doubt the the Turkish leaders care that much. I mean, they're willing to blow up their own people. So it's kind of, uh, the message is kind of falling on deaf ears in that sense. But uh, Mm -hmm.
1: just... Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you have to to remember as well that, uh, you know, any overt government generally aren't the real power uh, Mm -hmm. in in any particular country. So like Erdogan and his people aren't necessarily aware of or in control of everything that happens within Turkey. And that, uh, I mean, I think I wrote with this as well last year, um, that the Turkish uh, intelligence, effectively civilian and military intelligence, have a kind of a, their history goes back to uh, NATO stay behind networks in Europe after, during the Cold War, you know, um, Mm -hmm. after the Second World War, setting up these groups within Turkey and infiltrating uh, countries in in Europe and uh, putting Western or US uh, agents or people Within those countries, within those intelligence uh, services in those countries, in order to to create kind of breakaway or uh, black operations divisions that uh, can be used for for whatever you know uh, for carrying out you know terror, quote unquote terror attacks mm-hmm. in any country in Europe or surrounding countries or within the country itself, uh, and they effectively control the course when necessary control the course of the political course of that country uh, through 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 mass murder really uh by, by you know i mean it, it it is a very effective tool apparently to mm-hmm. um, to destabilize a country i mean if necessary you can have enough violence in a country where you can justify or create the political uh, will or motivation or capital or whatever to force the the overthrow or a change a change in government you know in
2: any country yeah, it's good you brought up uh, gladio there because there's uh, at least the the appearance of a gladio connection in this this uh, attack too, um, and that gets back to the actual attackers. Now, there's first of all um, another little detail of of the actual attacks. Apparently, um, I don't know how the Turkish media knows this, or if they're just making it up, or if they're putting the story out there. But apparently, they're saying in the Turkish media. That the, the three attackers had planned on actually taking a whole bunch of hostages and having a, a big hostage situation. Who knows with what purpose? Um, but that what happened was they, they basically got caught first. And you can see this on the videos. I mean, there's, there's a video of one guy who's just walking through the you know, next to an elevator and this undercover, um, either airport security or police. There's three, there's three different kinds of, of police or military at, at this Turkish airport. There's this, uh, the airport security, then there's regular police, and there's also the military. So one of these undercover guys um, saw this guy, um, and I think he sur- either he survived, or it was another guy that survived, um, one of these police officers that said, well, th- this guy was really suspicious because he was wearing this this heavy jacket in really hot weather. And so I guess that's one of the things that these... Security and police look for, and so he he confronted this guy and ended up getting shot um, right by the elevator. And all three of these guys apparently were were kind of caught before the, they could they could do this hostage situation. I don't know. Maybe that's why that one guy who threw his gun down was kind of frustrated because his plan wasn't going according to plan. But immediately after the attacks, uh, Turkish media released the three names of the guys involved. But um, now, apparently that wasn't true because we still haven't, um, you know, officially heard in the, in the Western press that these three guys have been confirmed as being, you know, whoever. But one of the names that they released, um, they said this guy, I can't remember the name, but they said that th- it was this guy, um, Russian citizen, um, he, and he had a Russian passport. But then the Russians came out and said, well, actually, there's no Russian with that name. No one has been issued that passport. So they said, then, then the story changed and they said, oh no, actually his name was, and then they, they flipped the first and last names um, and said, oh no, this was actually this guy's name. Now, the, the the they're saying they got the names from the passports, but even the passport story has changed because first they said that the passports were found, um, I think it was they'd used, um, one of the guys at least had used a photocopy of his passport to either rent an apartment or... Or, you know, do something. So they basically traced the cab back to where he came from and got a a photocopy of his passport from there. But then the story changed and they said that apparently all three of them had their passports on them. And that's where they got these names. And um, so there's just – there's been a few stories out all all speculating and giving like, you know, anonymous sources on the identities of these guys saying that they're from Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Dagestan in Russia – And, um, but there's been no real confirmation of that yet who these guys actually really were, but it's interesting that they, they named those countries. Um, I'll get into that in a second, but the, the one name that's come up that um, hasn't really been talked about in the Western media, RT covered it. And, um, you know, some of the, of course the Russian media is covering it, but the guy that they're saying is the mastermind that the, the Turks are saying is the mastermind behind this operation is this guy, Ahmed um, Chataev, who's this notorious Chechen terrorist that um, participated in the Second Chechen War. And he was, um, like, after the war, he, he went to Austria. He was allegedly granted refugee status in Austria. And then since then, in 2003, this guy's been all over the place um, he was arrested in, I believe, Sweden. Uh, he he was arrested in Georgia, in uh, Bulgaria. He was crossing the border anyway. Like so, he was he was arrested in numerous different countries, European countries included, and held. And then, all, he was always released. And so, the reasons that he were, he was arrested, he was usually found with like weapons and bomb making material. And um, one of the times he was, he was arrested, he had bomb making material and, and he had photos on his phone of, um, like of dead bodies that had died in explosions. And like I said, every time he was arrested, he's always released. When he was arrested in Georgia, he was arrested when Saakashvili was in charge and then um, released when, uh, you know, after Saakashvili um, fled Georgia with his tail between his legs. And then he was let go, and that, And then in, I think it was sometime in early 2015, he crossed from Turkey into Syria, and he became this ISIS leader, and there's video of him, you know, with the ISIS flag, given um, given his standard, the standard ISIS shtick, and, but just a little bit more about this Chateyev guy, he was... Um, well let me just read a bit about this so we've got an article that we put up um, on sot it's in puppet masters it should be on the front page if you go to it um, Ahmed Chataev the inconvenient fighter against Russia accused of planning the Istanbul attacks and it's got a bit of his background so for example uh, Russian authorities believe Chetaev was doku Umarov, he was that's the the Chechen leader of the Caucasus emirate which is the kind of the jihadi organization in Chechnya which is now kind of um declared their support for the Islamic State. So he was this Umarovs representative in Western Europe um, and accused. And he was accused either of financing or recruiting terrorists or membership in militant groups. So this is why Russia issued a warrant for his arrest in 2003 because he was basically recruiting Chechen terrorists to fight jihad in Chechnya against Russia um, in Western Europe. Um, and so he received refugee status and then he was arrested in sweden like i said he, oh and then he was arrested in ukraine as well <laughs> and when he was arrested in ukraine all these kind of right-wing neo-nazi groups came forward saying oh you this is horrible the, you know ahmed shatayev this great guy how can you do this you have to let him go and one of the guys that wrote a letter on his behalf was um Dmitry yarosh um, who's, what, what's he, The is he, he's the head of, what is it, was it right sector? I can't remember which specific yeah. right wing group he's in charge of. Yeah. And so he said, uh, um, you know, it's just horrible that this Chechen patriot is being treated so badly, um, you know, all for that evil Kadyrov. And then, um, who else? Get far? Oh yeah. And then there's this, at the end of the article, there's this great, um, um, this great letter from the Independent International Human Rights Group. So they wrote um, this, this letter on behalf of Chitaev, saying, we the members of the Independent International Human Rights Group are petitioning the Bulgarian government, when he was arrested in Bulgaria, to release a Chechen refugee, the father of four children, Ahmed Chitaev, who is being persecuted by Russia for his political beliefs. They say, but uh, the European Court on Human Rights in Strasbourg ruled, uh, used Rule 39 to instruct Ukraine's government that due to his Austrian refugee status, he could not be extradited to Russia. Um, so just this glowing letter on behalf of this poor political prisoner, Ahmed Chitaev, who is just <laughs> all these European who then, nations. Who then, who, then, who then turns up in Turkey and who turn, yeah, turns up and in Syria. Turkey airport and blows himself up. Well no, he didn't blow himself up. He's just allegedly the mastermind behind it. He's the guy that planned it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh yeah, so who then turns up and does this? Now, now this all this is interesting because, you know, I have no idea how they get this information? If the Turks just did a bang-up job in their investigation and found the mastermind, or if they're just saying, you know, they've just picked this guy out of the, out of their hat for for who to blame. But it's interesting either way that they use him because this guy is just the perfect like poster child mm-hmm. of of Western um, kind of gladio B style terror terrorism in the Middle East and all over the world. That, that, and so just by bringing him into the picture, whether he's guilty or not, it kind of, it exposes like EU complicity in all this. All these European nations were just, um, you know, even though they arrested the guy, they were treating him, um, pretty well and letting him go and had supported him from the beginning in the war in Chechnya. So it's just, it, it, it's just ridiculous in retrospect to see how well this guy was treated, and now he's in Syria, and now he's apparently the guy that uh, is responsible for, you know, killing forty-four people in Istanbul.
0: You'll probably find he was recruited by MI six or yeah. maybe a U.S. agency in the nineties.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah, exactly. Protected. And that's the, that's the kind of Gladio B angle. And Even the fact that they mention like the, you know, the three countries that they, they're saying that these guys came from, well, two countries, the, the Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and then Russia and Dagestan, all these regions are kind of central regions to the, the, the so-called Gladio B operation, which, which is to, to get Russia via, um, via radical Islam in Central Asia and the Caucasus. And to have this Chechen guy who's operating in Western Europe, I mean, it just, to me at least, it screams of this, this, uh, this gladio-type operation that's been going on for the past 20, 30 years.
3: Yeah, I mean, what are the odds of, of one individual covering so much ground? Um, and in Ukraine, uh, apparently Russia requested his extradition on terrorism charges, but the European Court for Human Rights ordered Ukraine not to hand them over yeah. to Russia. With Amnesty International of all organizations also urging Mm -hmm. Ukrainian authorities to halt extradition as Chateyev could face an unfair trial and would be at risk of torture and other ill treatment, which which just tells you uh, how deeply under the thumb even these organizations like Amnesty International are of uh, of Mm -hmm. this uh, Gladio B, NATO, Western imperial agenda. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not even, it's, okay, yeah, Gladio B, you can call it Gladio B, but it's, it goes far, well, yeah, I mean, it's a good term, Gladio B, because Gladio A obviously was designed to, uh, you know, with these networks set up in Europe by NATO to stop uh, Russia from gaining influence on Europe. Yeah. Uh, Gladio, Gladio B uh, is now the jihadi dimension and seems to, encor- encor- and it's just been retooled for Islamic purposes. It's not fighting against commies now directly, uh, or fighting against lefties. It's fighting against well, it's fighting against Russia. That's the same target, but it's using jihadi terrorism as a force instead of uh, having NATO kind of white Western, um, you know, radical right wing groups who would plant bombs in European cities and stuff to try and get rid of leftist governments. Now you have jihadi Muslims <clears throat> uh, used to plant bombs in Western countries to uh, basically, to not really, to well, to a certain extent, it's not about getting rid of leftist governments anymore. It's about getting rid of any government or, or tra- trying to control any government that would in any way be... Um, you know, as uh, you know, c- cuddling up to or cozying up to uh, to Russia in any in any way, really whatsoever, yeah. and at the same time, it seems to have a purpose of uh, of uh, of just controlling the populations, of scaring the populations of of Western countries as well. I mean, so the the target isn't specifically um, politicians, left left winging, commie, socialist, whatever politicians or governments. But the target is also ordinary people in Western countries, you know. Uh, And the the fact that this has happened, we assume that if the result, if you you see a certain result, then that was part of the plan or is part of the plan. I mean, just uh, last night, for example, there was, you know, there's this uh, European football championship going on at the minute. And uh, Germany were playing uh, Italy last night. And there were a large number of people in Paris outside uh, watching the match on a big TV screen. You know, they couldn't get into the stadium. Well, it was in Bordeaux anyway, but these were people in Paris watching it outside in a kind of park area where it's displayed on, on a big screen. And um, someone, there's a video of it. Someone, you, you don't actually see the firecracker, but someone just let off a firecracker at the top of the crowd of people. What all you see is someone... F- Kind of quite far back, and you, you, they're, they're, they have their smartphone or whatever, videoing it, and you see this wave of people starting to rush, but towards this this guy who's videoing it, uh, and they're all terrified of obviously uh, of a bomb of some kind of an attack. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know you can understand why people would be uh, nervous about that, uh, but it's interesting that all it takes now is for someone to set off a firework amongst a group of people to uh, cause a stampede. Uh, of people terrified and fleeing the scene. I mean, that would not have happened 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, and speaking of, speaking of that spread of that ideology, that, that, that belief system of that f- sense of um, the belief in, in Muslim terrorism and, and the fear of it and the insecurity that it creates, there was a story just from this week uh, that uh, Japan, of all places, has passed a law that was effectively... Uh, Legitimizing or, or legalizing the surveillance of Muslims in Japan, uh, Muslim groups, of Muslims going to mosques, of Muslims getting together uh, for some—all twenty uh, of them, right? All <laughs> twenty of them. Yeah, well, there's, there's there's a there's a decent enough number, but the idea that they would in any way be um, that they're in any way a threat to anything in Japan, of all places, and Japan being really you know the opposite end of the globe. Uh, in a certain sense, from America, you came at, it struck me that uh, the idea that once you see um, the meme effectively of Muslim terrorism and surveillance of Muslims and Muslims being a threat to society once you see that meme uh, that idea reaching and taking hold in Japan when it started on nine eleven in New York well there's nowhere else for it to go it starts to reach it's already reached america i mean there's only the sea between japan and the east coast or sorry the west coast of america so that's kind of like for me it was almost like yeah
0: wait i want to see it in fiji first before i'm convinced it's global
1: well i think it's there already you know but uh it's uh you know it's spread it's spread pretty much at this point it it has spread and it's spread around the world everywhere and uh and that's—it's almost like that's game, game over or mission accomplished. You know, it's now that George Bush should be standing on an aircraft carrier uh, and saying mission accomplished because that—the real mission—spreading mm-hmm. this nonsense about uh, Muslims being terrorists, basically. Uh, now that it's reached Japan, the other side of the world from America, uh, it's job done.
2: Yeah. At a boy all right um let's move on to a a few other stories just uh first just a couple little news bites that i want to share you're taught joe earlier you were talking about just what a a douchebag uh president erdogan is and um just the hubris of of the whole situation with the uh with the shoot down of the jet and all that but uh i just saw this this headline earlier um relating to Poland's ex-president uh, Walesa, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, um, and he says, um, let me just read this, so Poland's former president and democracy icon Lech Walesa said he would not hesitate to knock off the wing of Russian jets if he were in charge of the US destroyer Donald Cook. So he said, quote, if I were the commander of this ship, if these Russian planes were flying, I would shoot them, but not to kill, I would knock off the wing. So, yeah, just another to way like, Totally, total
1: idiot. Um, With a saw. Well, the perfect answer to that guy is, you know, when he when he has a speech, if I was in that, if I was commander, I would do this and I would do that, and that's what happened. And the perfect answer to someone like that is, that's why you're not. Yeah. Well, Lech- thanks for your input, but that's why you're not commander. Okay, now you can go and crawl back onto your rock.
3: That was Lech Walesa. Yeah. So he was the the leader of the Solidarity movement uh, in the early '80s in Poland. It, I remember correctly. And, um, you know, that that's just so typical of so many of these Eastern European guys who live within this prism of, I hate the Soviet Union um, feelings. Uh, and, you know, I've spoken to uh, Georgians um, and, and other people who've lived in, in parts of uh, Asia and, and Eastern Europe. And that's, you know, that's all they seem to... Know or think about or want to remember about Russia? They 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 are living in a in this kind of a, a, this time warp.
2: Can you imagine how horrible that must be if you're constantly living in the eighties? <laughs> well, that's you know. this guy
3: for sure, Ronald Reagan. But I think yeah. that explains why you know you have these guys in Romania and uh, and and Latvia and and Poland. Who are just, you know, they're so reactionary. They're so uh, they're so mechanical about their understanding of, of, you know, how things exist today. How things, you know, may in fact have changed. They can't see the changes. They can't see that uh, that Russia is not the Soviet Union that it was thirty years ago. Um, so, I think that explains yeah. nuts like uh, Wallessa, Wall- among others.
1: Yeah did you see the story about um breed love breed hate breed mm-hmm. fear uh there dc leaks which is like a you know secret email hacker group that releases uh, uh information about the rich and, and pathetic um he this group released um gmail breed loves emails from gmail, breed loves gmail account were uh, made it pretty clear that General Philip Breedlove, who was, he retired recently, didn't he? Um, mm-hmm. who, who was, um, until a couple of months ago, I think, Supreme Commander of NATO forces in Europe. Uh, he plotted to, uh, with um, with the neocons, basically. Your um, man uh, uh, Victoria Nuland, uh, her and her husband, and, and, and other people of their ilk, uh, to influence the White House uh, are plotted to overcome Obama or whoever else, the White House. Uh, the reluctance, their apparent uh, reluctance to a certain extent to uh, escalate tensions with Russia over the past number of years, starting really with the Ukraine situation. Uh, the, I think their point was, Breedlove, was was the in on this, he's um, just a military neocon. Um, the idea was that they had plotted the whole, uh, to be involved and to direct the uh, Ukrainian uh, revolution, quote-unquote, and to use it for very specific ends, i.e. to isolate and demonize and threaten Russia. And uh, they plotted uh, these emails revealed that Breedlove was uh, having regular contacts with uh, these neocon types in the State Department, etc., to get them all whipped up and to put pressure on uh, Obama and Biden and everything to um, to get on board with the strategy of uh, unfairly, unjustifiably, and falsely uh, accusing and demonising Russia, and and doing effectively what we have seen has happened over the past uh, few years, where there's been, been this concerted attempt, political uh, and military attempt to to convince the entire Western world that Russia is, uh, you know, some a country to be feared by everybody. Uh, and so it's interesting that uh, you know the, it just gives an insight into the kind of um, the backroom boys and stuff. And Harrison, you were saying something about it. I mentioned Robert Cagan, who is this uh, neoconservative Conservative uh, tool who mm-hmm. um, who is uh, was kind of peanut guy, you know, Project for a New American Century, and we have to rule the world, yeah, 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 America, USA, we're number one, baby. Let's get everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but this guy, uh, you were what you were watching a video that someone put together of him among other people, and something. Yeah, just just that, that we what you were saying.
2: So it's um, the documentary is called A Very Heavy Agenda, and it's in three parts. The third part was just released. I haven't watched the third part yet. I've just watched the first part, and just a, l- a little bit of background first. It's a it's it's a documentary series, and it pretty much exclusively just. Puts together and splices together clips of all these various neocons, um, either interviews they've done on you know mainstream news channels or C-SPAN interviews or statements they've given at different conferences, and so you see the neocons in their own words how they justify what their what their um, policies are and what they think of themselves what they think of everything really. And so Robert Kagan is one of the the stars of the first episode, um, which is part one, a, a catalyzing event, and he's just got some some real whoppers that he lets out in this part. Um, the, one of the, one of them, first of all, is that he says um, just quite openly that um, you know he says it's it's a it's a horrific thing to say, but you know um, America, we have this. Um, the, the government is very continuous. It doesn't matter who's in charge, whether it, whether it's Democrat or Republican. The policy doesn't change, and you can't expect it to change. Um, it w- we, we pretty much you know, run the foreign policy, and it doesn't matter what the president thinks when he goes into office. Once he gets into office, he finds out that there's not much he can do. That's one of the things he says. <laughs> he also says that um, he wrote this book, um, I can't. I don't know the exact title. It's something like the Myth of America or something. But he has. He says that the Myth of America is that America is this, and has been this isolationist country that um, that only gets involved in wars when we're attacked or when we're threatened. But he says, "No. If you look at at history, at the history of America, it's an American, the the American military, and its its use in, in foreign conflicts is a is an American tradition. And we have a, you know a history of just using our military to advance our national interests. And um, and yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, we may break our own rules when we do this, but um, it's just a it's just an American tradition." And he says it all in this calm and reasonable voice, as if it's just the um, you know it's just a, a statement of fact. It's just, a, a, mm. a, it's just amazing to see what this guy will just say in public and, uh, oh. and of course, Nobody he's, he's Victoria different. Newland's husband.
3: Yes. Now, that's the irony, right? Because, you know, she gets up there in front of the, the press corps and, um, you know, while her husband has been known to say all of these things, she comes out and puts on this completely different veneer. Uh, freedom and democracy, as she engineers all of these color revolutions in Ukraine and, and other nations and other places, and just a little. Yeah, she back, on that. Go ahead. Go ahead. She, I was going to say she puts on, she puts on that
1: veneer in public, uh, but you get a different story when you're listening to her private com. Their tele- private telephone conversations. Yeah. You know,
3: f the f the EU, right?
1: F the EU, and let's pick the, the Ukrainian government.
3: Mm-hmm and like just a little Go background ahead. from uh, from the documentary so um it's Robert Kagan and, and all the Cyanese and and neocons uh that were responsible for the plan for a new american century which is basically like the blueprint of of um responding to an american event global like 9/11 american global domination by force as well pretty, as m- pretty 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 much. force. pretty much yeah so uh interesting if someone came up to Victoria Newland with uh, her husband's statements in a press conference and said well what what do you think of uh, mm. what do you think of what your husband said uh, that time when he uh,
2: yeah. talked about uh, you know taking over the world basically well, mm. these no guys comment. are so these guys are so slimy mm. there's lots of Bill Crystal he's probably the slimiest just because he's got that big grin mm. on his face all the time mm-hmm. but uh, mm. PNAC was PNAC was officially like dissolved um, several years ago, but, uh, and so they say, oh yeah, PNAC doesn't really do, do much anymore. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't do much to begin with. We, we only really had any kind of power in the early nineties, um, mm. uh, which is a total lie. But now all of these guys that were part of PNAC, all they did is they, they just started new organizations. So now there's the foreign policy Institute and um, mm-hmm. the Institute for the study of war and CNAS, um, uh, CNAS—I can't remember what it stands for—the Center for New American Strategy or something like that—and that's the mm-hmm. one that, Clint, that Clinton's behind. So I mean, they've they've just got all these new organizations, and like like Kagan said explicitly, they'll work with anyone. Um, one of these one of these neocons—I um, can't remember which one it, it was—but he was one of the PNAC guys. He was um, he was campaigning with um, um, oh what's his name, Mitt Romney and and one of his advisors and then robert kagan um he was he he was with someone i can't remember like but it was a republican a republican candidate and then he just kind of like totally switched and and he said like before the before obama came into power he's like oh well you know um i've still got some job opportunities and then Clint, uh, obama Hires him, or he gets a position as like this this advisor, some kind of foreign policy advisor. And so th- they just they don't like he said they don't care if it's a de- Democrat or a Republican. They're always in the background, and they always manage to get these positions of ex- extreme influence. And of course, there's mm-hmm. Victoria Newland and Hillary Clinton. Hillary, Hillary Clinton is just a neocon. Uh, same right. thing. These are the people. This Robert kagan
1: guy and the, and those neocon types. I mean, there's other types as well, but they are people who are unelected. They're members of these uh, think tank institutions, like the Brookings Institute and stuff. And they are effectively policymakers. That's what they're called. They're called uh, uh, government policymakers and advisors. And they, uh, I mean that that term is a is a, very, is a literal description of what they do. They basically write up policy papers uh, for the government. Uh, that is either you know that that influences the uh, the. The attitude or the the thinking of, uh, they're kind of lobbyists really for war. They're like war lobbyists. And um, and they influence the White House and they influence uh, Congress and they basically um, set the course, set the agenda for US, mostly US foreign policy. And these people are unelected. And I mean, of course, they're the ones who are sitting all day doing their research and writing papers and. Uh, bringing in different people, different experts from different parts of the world so called experts from different parts of the world to produce these papers that make this argument for why the u s should be, essentially be uh, use its military to invade this country or use the CIA or use its forces and capabilities whatever to change this situation in this country so I mean these people are effectively they're the writing u uh, s foreign policy and having it accepted uh, and so it 's interesting. So they're effectively, they're like the eminent squeeze behind, behind the throne, if you know what I mean, behind the White House, behind Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that you have people like uh, this guy who's, who's one of these people who makes this policy that he openly states exactly what we've been saying for uh, many years. Um, but we find ourselves then in, in a strange position of saying that kind of thing, trying to convince the ordinary members of the public and you have the people who we are accusing of doing this actually saying, yeah, we do that. And yet the public still don't believe.
3: Yeah.
1: I mean, what what do you do in that situation? Where I mean, it's one thing for you to try and argue a point and the public can say, well, I'm not too sure. Uh, I'm not too sure what you're saying about those people. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if I believe what you say about them. But when you can go, yeah, but they say it too. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if that's true anymore. Well, I, don't, I still don't think that's true. Is there, maybe, maybe they're, I don't know, maybe they're not telling the truth. Maybe they're just joking. Now at what point do people, uh, well,
0: they'll also say, well, who is that person? That could be anybody. They don't understand that you know that that's the powerful person.
1: Well, you can tell them who that is. You can easily find out who it is.
0: Do we have, the do we have makers. Do we have this up on saw?
2: No. Um, no, I will get it up on um it but it's only available uh, for purchase so it's not available you can't watch it for ah, free right. online but it's I, a documentary. I, yeah it's a documentary I'm gonna put I'm gonna put up a review of it though that'll have links yeah great
1: and uh, can we move over to uh, the UK yeah
2: yeah but first or, uh, the, just as a transition into into UK <laughs> I just want to talk about this uh, about the, the quote from Juncker recently did you guys see this? <laughs> what are you so Juncker's speaking at it looks like the I don't know European Commission or something, and uh, and he said um, I'll just read the English translation. Now I'll preface this by saying that he almost certainly misspoke, um, you know, just said the wrong words, but it created it made for some uh, pretty interesting. Um, well, well, I'll just read it out here. So he said, "You need to know that those who ser- who observe us from afar are worried." I have seen, listened, and heard many leaders of other planets, and they are very worried because they wonder about the cur- the course the EU will follow. So we have to reassure both the Europeans and those who observe us from afar. So he said that he, that he has seen, listened, and heard from leaders of many planets. Yeah, um, and I've, I think he was probably just drunk or something. They left that. You can see the video of it. We've got it up on site. You, you can see him saying it in French. Um, he said and,
0: this in Russia.
2: Right. In Russia? No, no. He was uh, um, at the video. You know, Nigel Farage is right next to him, and it looks like he's. Um, this was just for a couple days it's ago. I think
0: pretty clear. I heard that pretty clear to me. He was talking about
2: the U.S. Well, yeah, exactly. No? He was talking about like other faraway nations. Um, that's what he meant to because say. Because like, yeah.
0: if you look, research, there's a whole history of the British media hates Juncker or it's been trained to hate Juncker because there's a history of him making statements about quote, the Anglo American world. You see, he knows the game and he's not afraid to say at least in hints in public mm-hmm. what the real deal is. He's explicitly accused British American banks of being behind the Euro crisis, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, He's, I think he suggested once the war on terror was an American creation. So you know, his, uh, yeah, he's speaking. He's speaking in a veiled way, but it's pretty clear that yeah, he's and, and, about and, the and US, I think the that's, power, that's the powers to be.
2: Yeah, and that's what he meant to say. It's just he got the his French mixed up a bit because he he probably most likely just meant to say leader many leaders of our planet, but he actually said many leaders from other planets. So he kind of. Um, just messed up when saying it, which was pretty funny. But like you said, what he's actually saying is actually kind of interesting.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, the UK, the land of hope and glory,
0: and pomp and circumstance.
1: Land of hope and glory. Um.
0: And wars, they like wars. Land
1: of war and. Huh? And anyway, uh, yeah.
2: Looks like what we've got you, a. What do you What you guys? Looks like we've got a call. Uh, do we want to take a Do, we, do you want to, Do we want to take a call right now?
3: Yeah,
1: go
2: ahead. All right, so <laughs> caller, you're on the line. Can you tell us who you are, where you're from?
4: Yeah, this is Stephen, Orlando. All right, Stephen. We won. <laughs> we won. Won what? The the Brexit.
0: Who won? Who won? <laughs> well.
4: I don't know, we, the people that, the, the, the people that, uh, that wanted to Brexit one. Yeah.
0: They're not the people on your side, Stephen. Is
4: that a good thing? No, I just don't, you know, I look at the comments and, um, I think it's a, I, I don't think it's good logic to, uh, just because people that are on your side, uh, some people are far right and they have some views that they are, they're concerned about immigration and, the composition of the country culturally. I don't think that's illegitimate. Um, I think that some people on the left, um, some people on the left that, that, that use this thing that, Oh, we cannot ally with people that are on the right. I think that's a bad, that's bad logic politically. Mm -hmm. So just because, uh, you know, just because I'm, I'm, I'm anti white supremacist and there's a lot of people that, Supported Brexit that are white supremacist and I just tell them like, Hey, you're, you're a loser ideology. And I try to find some, but I try to find some common ground with people. But, um, when I listen to the commentary of people that are on the, the supposed liberal left and the way they caricatured the Brexit voters, you know, I find that pretty distasteful because every society, every country, um, you do have to control the amount of immigration, the composition of your country. This is a fluid conversation that never ends, but it's not an illegitimate conversation.
1: No, it's not. Can you turn uh, off the speakers? speakers? Who, me?
0: Yeah, yeah, we're going to sit We're hearing ourselves.
4: No, it's not because of me. Mm. Okay. Really?
1: Mm-mm. uh okay oh it's better, better now. now okay yeah. um the thing is it, it was um yeah those people i mean there's a lot of demonization on both sides and you know pitting both you know leave the leave camp against the stay camp and stuff but the problem here is that it's uh it's a kind of a manufactured straw man argument really i mean i know it's real for some people or it's real in a certain, in, in a certain sense but the whole immigration thing has been manufactured deliberately manufactured um, as a result of Western wars and warmongering in the Middle East, <clears throat> in Syria, they have a four year long civil war, quote unquote, f- f- bogus civil war in Syria that creates massive death, destruction, and an upheaval of uh, upheaval of of the people living in those countries. And then they, um, then you know th- that, that that those waves of people trying to leave, trying to flee the wars that the West is waging, come to Europe, and they come and they and, and they're coming into the UK, and the UK. Uh, the British people, English people, have a particular psychological profile where they're quite kind of um, uh, historically quite insular, and um, you know what's uh, oh, the best way to describe them? Um, they're quite um, uh, they're quite nationalistic in that sense, you know, uh, almost from a racial point of view, and uh, so they would be the ones who would perhaps more, more than any other European country would have the biggest problem with. Uh, foreigners, let's say, coming into the country and particularly when it's uh, mixed with the idea of there might be terrorists coming into the country and you throw in the several um, suicide or, or terror attacks that have happened over the past few years that throw that into the mix. Well, yeah, you're going to create uh, a feeling amongst those, that particular demographic within within England or within the, the UK uh, that, that, will, uh, that will make uh, them ripe to to vote to leave the EU if you present leaving the EU as a solution to the problem of these immigrants slash terrorists coming to invade your beautiful English garden. Um, and that's all manipulated and manufactured. That's not the, the issue. And we noticed that somehow as a result, it's good that you brought this up because uh, this is what we want to talk about. Uh, somehow as a result of this Brexit uh, vote, where 52% supposedly of the population voted to leave. Somehow, and the reason they voted to leave, that number of people voted to leave, was because they've been terrified about immigrants and ISIS and terrorists coming to bomb them, uh, which, as I said, has been manufactured. So they vote on that basis. Uh, But somehow, that vote has created the situation where perhaps the only person in British politics of any significance at this time um, who who has been... Uh, pushing a campaign of uh, social justice and better pay and uh, basically everything that would benefit the ordinary people of the UK, somehow they created a situation where this Brexit vote has led to his almost uh, ousting from the party where he's gotten rid of. So what I'm saying there is that... Right, exactly, Jeremy Corbyn. So what I'm saying there is that how did it happen where the British people... Were given this kind of uh, this reason to leave the EU that was really manufactured and really isn't uh, just a natural force. If you know what I mean, it's a manufactured, manipulated force, and they're the, the victims of this manipulation. Which is like I say, the refugees and the Western warmongering. Warmongering. How did it happen? were were uh, them? Were, were they given this as something to worry about? You know, ISIS and immigration and stuff. And that that leads to the kicking out or the, the sidelining of the only person in British politics who could actually, who's actually fighting and campaigning to make their lives better in very tangible ways. Yeah. Okay. Not, yeah, he's, yeah. Not, he's not, he's not, trying to fight against immigrants and, and say, kick out all the immigrants and close our borders and that will make everything better because it won't because the psychos are still in power. What Jeremy Corbyn has been trying to do is say, kick the psychos out of power, kick the bankers out of power, kick the corporate uh, psychos out of power. And give real power back to the people, not in some kind of like close our borders and we'll all be wonderfully English all together in isolation, but rather let's improve living standards. Let's improve uh, pay for people. Let's improve improve national, uh, the national healthcare system. Basically, let's kick the psycho corporate banking political elite out of this country and then everybody would be happy and we won't have to worry so much Well, first of all you'll all be happier because you'll all have a better standard of living uh, and secondly we won't have to worry anymore about we'll deal with the refugee or, or crisis or the immigrants or whatever because that will go away by itself because you won't have the warmongers in power anymore who are creating the wars that create the immig- immigrants in the first place but he has been booted out somehow or isn't close to being booted out because of this Brexit vote, which makes no sense whatsoever. What's what's it got to do with him? It wasn't his fault that people voted, 52% of people voted to get out. It was the fault of the warmongers who have been terrifying the British population over the past four years with ISIS and immigrants. They're the ones who caused the Brexit, Brexit vote and they used it to try and get rid of him as well. And this comes two weeks I mean, this campaign to try and get rid of him started really in earnest two weeks before this Chilcot inquiry, which is the inquiry into the Iraq War and the events that led up to the invasion of Iraq, which uh, really that was spearheaded by Blair and Bush. And Blair is very much in the in the spotlight on this Chilcot inquiry that's going to actually be released on Wednesday in, in two or three days. And Jeremy Corbyn was waiting for that report to be. To be released it has been in process for six years and people have been saying, what the hell's going on? Six years for a report to say what we all already know, uh, to officially say that Blair is a war criminal and should be in prison. And he, and Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn wanted to wait until Wednesday, uh, as leader of the, of the opposition in the UK so that he could basically officially call for the impeachment of Tony Blair, which is the first step and a very, you know, one of just a few small steps that would lead to Tony Blair uh, being put in prison and right yeah, as well, that uh, thing is a process <clears throat> this Brexit happens, distracts everybody and somehow Jeremy Corbyn is told you're no longer sufficient or you're no, you no longer have the support of your MPs and you have to leave, i.e. you won't have any parliamentary power to stand up and say Blair should be impeached
4: Well, Blair's, and yet, Blair's, not, yeah. Blair's not in power ahead. right now I said
0: Blair's not no, in he's power not. he, he is. is, but in the UK there. They're, even in, in the mainstream papers, they're openly saying that the people trying to get him out of the Labour Party are the, the Blairite network. Blair's yeah, a sure. rich rich a man long. now, and he has got it's fingers it's still, still all over the British establishment. So. The
1: because the, impeach, the impeachment of him, the putting him in prison, would be a very, very significant, uh, if, if only symbolic in a certain sense, uh, denunciation of... The warmongering culture
5: well,
4: in the West, the problem, in
1: the UK the over the past year.
4: The problem I see is with England is that with it, the same everywhere in here too, is that there's actually no movement, organized movement with ideological consistency. Um, when you listen to some of the comments coming out of the, uh, the social justice warrior types, and I know that's a right wing kind of meme. That's meant to denigrate. And I'm on the, I'm on the left, but look, look, I look at the real situation that I have to live in. I have to compete with undocumented worker and I got to do the jobs. Even they don't want to do. I work in lakes. You don't see pay raises going up for 20 years. Immigration, undocumented immigrant come here and they take jobs that people used to have. And now the wages are driven so low that if you're a working class person white the white working class male has nobody speaking up for them on the national in, in the political sphere and Donald Trump doesn't represent us i'm, gonna, I'm not going to say them because it's us so when we're told by the social justice warrior like hey nobody the the immigrants that are here undocumented they're only taking jobs that you don't want, and you know damn well it's a freaking lie. It's block, it's block work, it's masonry work, it's building pools, construction. So the liberal types that we're supposed to, I'm supposed to be aligned with because I'm anti-racial supremacy, I'm anti, um, I'm anti-right uh, wing, you know, anti-Semitism. I, all of that's repugnant to me, and I'm I'm actually not anti the immigrant but see the white social justice warrior when i voice what i have to say they don't want to hear it they automatically characterize me as a trump supporter oh you're a whiner you hate immigrant no i don't my best workers from cuba he's he's an immigrant and um and but then i listen to uh people the white social justice warrior type they don't have my back at all and they're um I can see the same thing happened in in Britain because of the Brexit thing. The denigration of people that voted for Brexit, these are people that who who are being put out of of good paying work because of the immigration policies. You know, and to act like that's not true, you know, on the part of the the left or what they call but, the left, but
1: but they're not really being put out of jobs because of the immigration policies. They're being put out of the jobs because of the pillaging and plundering of the of the economy by big corporations who don't pay taxes and who and and by poli- and their friends in politics who uh, and this mightn't apply too much in the U S but in, in in Europe and in the U K over the past year there's been a concerted campaign to um not to not, to privatize to allow big corporations, politicians allowing big corporations to come in to buy up all of the services that are provided, and many of them for free, I. Well, for free, i.e. buy your taxes, allow them to be bought up by big corporations who then put the prices way up and who are cutting jobs left, right, and center, big corporations who aren't paying taxes but are also cutting jobs left, right, and center, dropping wages. I mean, this is a corporate banking political problem. It's not about immigrants.
4: And the only thing I would say is, like, to say that, that to say that people, because of immigration policy, that nobody is displaced and, and harmed by it, I think that's a total false statement. And um, so that's the same thing I hear here. Everybody tells me, like, I'm 52. I have a huge back problem. I have to do work that even the people that are here undocumented don't want to do. And for the same wages I got 20 years ago. And I watch whole construction crews of uh, African-American block layers be fired on the spot for complaining. And then the next day, you have a whole crew of undocumented people that are laying blocks. So, like, you know, this is the thing. This is what I'm I'm living. This is what I'm. Go ahead.
0: You came in right as we haven't even begun a discussion on Bracey yet. So, can I suggest that you let us go ahead and have it and maybe hear our perspective first? It's
4: all all good. And and no disrespect to you guys, because I like all of you guys and I know that you're, you're sincere, you're critical thinkers. But, um, you know, and I'm not in it, but I'm kind of tired of being like, you know, I'm in a horrible situation right now. I clean, I clean lakes and. And I look at the thing, there's a pincher movement. There's on the one side, you got globalization that takes out any good jobs that can be exported. Um, now it's going into middle class jobs. You can do paralegal work in India, you know, so there's so many, you got the globalization from the big corporations that ship jobs out. And then on the same time, we have immigration policy where people here, wages are being suppressed because of the, the pool of labor, available labor. And it's, and it's like, I'm just tired of being classified as a racist when I try to voice my concern in, in in what I see and what I experience, and a lot of people have a problem translating that. No, I'm not. I know that these people come here be, because of our foreign policy in the right. Americas. You know, so I'm not a yeah. hater, and I I, mm-hmm. I I love I love Mexican people, and I'm not like. Looking at them and go, ooh, you bet. No, I'm not. Cause I know it's more complicated, but all I'm saying, I'm, I'm going to hang up after this, but all I'm, and I, I look forward to hearing your comments on the Brexit, but I'm just saying that I just, just to let you know, I kind of sympathize with the Brexit as far as on one level of US foreign policy, you know, with respect to the EU and their antagonism against Russia, because I'm a multipolar person fundamentally. And so I saw that as part of the, the machinations of power to um, to aggress against Russia. And um, on the other level, I, I'm sympathetic to these people that are not university educated that voted for Brexit because they're actually being economically harmed by a lot of policies. And they're not right. They may have they may have a lot of fears that they may have some racist ideas, but they're not just piece of shit people that are evil. No, 're voting no. They're voting from a reality that they experience. And the thing that right. put me off right. with some of the thing that put me off of some of the left, the Huffington Post left, is they're trying to like categorize this group of people as being like for that far right parties in, in England and all of that, which they right. indeed right. will try to take mileage out of this. But it's a very complicated uh, demographic and the dynamic is very complicated as well. So anyway, I, I'm, I really enjoy y'all's program and look forward to listening to your comments for the rest of your show.
1: All right. Thanks, dude. All, right, All
4: right. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Brexit then. Already did. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, let me throw something out here. I predicted that it would be – Uh it was i said i said in the title of my article it was a foregone conclusion britain isn't going anywhere i still think that's the case but i predicted that if they had to they would rig it the other way mm-hmm. i'm thinking now the only reason the result was the opposite to what i was called was because i underestimated just how perfidious the english establishment and really the wider banking western elite are and how far they were willing to push this because they've created a shitstorm, totally of their own doing. Remember the origins of this. The very idea of Brexit is a British establishment movement. This is not a grassroots political reformist movement of any shape whatsoever. It comes from the top. It means it's their baby from start to finish. If anything now, I would say, because I, I suspected that a majority of Brits, even the English, it to stay in the EU.
1: Yeah, they still do. If
0: anything, I reckon they rigged it. I don't
1: the know. Other way. Maybe it's hard to say. I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot of people protesting for it, but because we was split so almost evenly, 52, you fifty-two, you're gonna have a lot of people who feel strongly on both sides. People who, who who won, who who voted to leave, are kind of sitting there, and I suppose they're waiting to see what happens. <clears throat> the ones who wanted to stay felt quite strongly about staying and feel like they're going to lose a lot of stuff in terms of access to Europe and all that kind of stuff. And there was like tens of thousands of people marched in in London today or yesterday uh, against leaving the EU, you know? So you have people with strong opinions on both sides and feeling like uh, they're justified in what they voted for. But um, I think that when you consider... The past four or five years, or whatever, of uh, ramping up the fear factor around terror attacks, and then the past few years of saying of the whole immigration business and uh, throwing in the idea that immigration is almost synonymous with possible terror attacks, uh, you know, in shopping centers, in, in cinemas, in airports, etc., in train stations. Uh, that has had an effect on people. People are feeling that, and at the same time, they're feeling. The pressure of serious economic predation on on, on them on the on the on the on the economies of various different uh, european countries by corporations so it's this perfect storm where it's really squeezing people in a real way at their in their in their wallet in their bank balance and also at the level of uh, of fear-mongering and, and in a very real way by pushing these terror attacks into people's faces and making them afraid when you, when, you, when you think about all that, it's not it's possible that there was a majority of people, particularly in in the UK and particularly in certain areas of the UK and, and Little England type thing, uh, who voted to leave the EU, not because they have anything against the EU, but because they're afraid of immigration. They've, they've been encouraged to blame immigra- immigrants for their worsening uh, economic prospects, which has nothing to do with immigrants and they also are afraid of immigrants uh, bringing terror attacks to their country and all of that would say well if we the, the, it was it was presented to them in such a simplistic way that if we leave europe we can close the borders no more immigrants i.e. you'll have you'll have more money in your bank account and also no more immigrants e- equals no more terror attacks you'll be safe from the evil terror boogeyman mm. people responded to that and said yes in a very simplistic basic way which is horrible to present them with a massively oversimplified, uh, um, you know, explanation of the situation, to the point where they think, "Let's just leave Europe and everything will be fine," uh, because people think that way, and they don't have the time to look look into it and, and consider it and consider consider all of the complicated aspects of it, and uh, and then to ask them to vote for it, and, and then suggest that it's it's a, it's the informed will of the people is nonsense. So, uh This was, I mean, you have to just look at the results of it. And like I said before Stephen called in there, the results of it are that uh, one of the results seems to be that, um, well, one result is that they're they're unlikely. There's a lot of speculation and talk now that it's unlikely that Britain will actually, the UK will actually leave the EU in any significant way. So that's even, it was a waste of time. But the tangible result that we've seen in the past couple of weeks since the vote, is that Jeremy Corbyn is being... There's a coup against him, effectively. Mm -hmm. And somehow they conspired or construed this vote to be justification for getting rid of him. I mean, what's it got to do with him?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, our caller asks, where's the social justice movement? Where's the movement for change? And Stephen's done that on a number of occasions. The way things work in the real world is that now and then, one good man or woman sneaks if you like, uh, has the cunning to get into power somehow. And Jeremy Corbyn is that threat in the UK's context, kind of Ala Putin, the way he gets into power. Oh, hello, I just happen to be here. We don't exactly know how it happened, but it turns out he's basically a decent person well, and he's cunning in how he understands how the world works. Corbyn is concerned. kind of similar to that. And they know that because in, in, as soon as he was elected by Labour Party members, <laughs> they were like, freaking out they had they had their top generals say you know what this democracy thing in public give a speech at Chatham House I think they're they're like top policy think tank in in the UK Mm -hmm. we might need to reconsider this whole democracy idea (laughs) and then they explicitly said MI6 said yeah he's a serious threat to our national security this guy
1: yeah let me give you an example of of how uh in the UK, for example, in, in British politics, how there is really no difference between the left and the right, the, the Conservative Party of, of David Cameron, which is, I suppose is in power, although he's just left, and, and the Labour Party as represented, as remade by Tony Blair, the warmonger Labour Party. I mean, the Conservatives are traditionally a warmongering party, or that's, that's what they're known as. The, the Labour Party is anti-war. Blair totally turned that around and made the two of them exactly the same thing. And, and you see this happening uh, in the past couple of weeks. Cameron, the leader of the Conservative Party, did not want to, was lobbying strongly for uh, no, do not leave, even though his party was the party that presented the whole, that, that pushed for the referendum. He and his coterie in the Conservatives did not want to leave. Jeremy Corbyn, as the leader of the Labour Party, and generally speaking, the Labour Party did not want to leave. So those two are on the same page, right? Neither of them want to leave. But somehow, because the vote went to leave, Labour, the, Jeremy Corbyn was blamed for not securing a, a no vote, a stay in the EU vote. And that's the rationale behind him being impeached. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the authority or whatever anymore, blah, blah, blah. But then you have Cameron coming out and joining in Catcalls and the the rhetoric in Parliament for Jeremy Corbyn to uh, to resign as leader of the Labour Party. What's 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 it got to do with him? You know, yeah. it's it's and and if you if you put it in the context of Jeremy Corbyn gunning for Tony Blair, who is a, a long term and previous Labour Prime Minister. Jeremy Corbyn's gunning for him to get him in prison, basically, then surely David Cameron would be happy enough with that, right? Because he's going for... Uh, uh,
0: a the lo- enemy, a, a, a the
1: opposite. ...luminary yeah. of the Labour Party, the, mm-hmm. of the opposite party. But no, both Cameron and Blair, two supposedly opposite opposites in the in the political system in, in, in the UK, are both on the same page about let's get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, the current leader of the Labour Party. Why? Because Corbyn wants to put uh, Tony Blair in prison and deal a serious blow to the whole think- concept of British warmongering and uh, illegal invasions of other countries, and of course Blair, as he re- the, the Labour Party, uh, the Blairites in the Labour movement or uh, the Labour Party on the left, supposedly, and Cameron both are fully behind the idea of warmonger as much as possible. You know, so the whole thing's been, been, been completely yeah. confused and twisted, and you don't have a, any semblance of clear left and right anymore. You have a warmonger party, which is a, just a, a coterie of politicians and corporate heads in the UK, in the US, and elsewhere, who all just want to have war as much as possible forever, and it doesn't matter what party they're a member of. And then you have the odd person who comes along and rises to a, a reasonable position of power, and they're, a, they're an anti-war Uh, campaigner and they have to be stamped out at all costs Mm -hmm. because war gets them money, but war also destroys the economy and causes mass movements of of people around the world. And in this case into Europe, which is what gets all the ordinary people up in arms and we'll throw them something to make them feel like this will solve the problem. Throw them a Brexit, throw them the Brexit vote. There you go. That'll solve all the problems. No, the problem will be solved not by, Fighting immigrants or or, or siding with any kind of right wing nationalistic party or getting pulled into that ridiculous dynamic where it's us versus them, white versus black or whatever. It's get rid of the freaking warmongering psychos who are destroying your economy, destroying your jobs, destroying your bank balance and destroying the lives of people everywhere else around the world and causing them to flee into your country and then encouraging you, you to hate them rather than hate the psychos, encouraging you to hate the people that the psychos have been persecuting and causing to flee their homes to your home. Yeah. Y'all fight with each other now while we laugh it up and have some more war that'll just perpetuate the whole thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, these people are masters of deflection. Uh, that's what they do. That's, that's what they think about. Uh, they, they come up with these campaigns, uh, these memes, uh, they rile people up emotionally in, in all sorts of different ways and distract from what the real issues are, um, which reminds me of a, uh, an article that uh, that we carried on SOT recently about um, a lady in Arizona who's, um, who's just kind of um, relinquished her seat on the – I think it was – she was in public office. Anyway, she's running against McCain uh, for Senate, and, and she basically points out that he uh, is responsible for ISIS. And there are a few sound bites in her uh, commercial. And, and she pretty much just gets right to the heart of the matter. Um, and we just don't see enough of that sort of uh, truth-telling um, that gets right to the heart of the matter uh, anywhere. Um, I don't know how, you know, I haven't heard about her uh, before or, or since, uh, this, this one commercial, but, um, you know, it, it could be the beginning of, uh, of a, of a greater understanding of, of what's going on. Um, I don't know if we're ready to move on to another topic. I, um, yeah, did you guys want to,
0: I just want to make a final word on this, yeah. uh, uh, not the final word, sorry, uh, just a take home thing to stop people, for people to keep in mind when they're getting feeling, they're getting pulled in and riled up about it. Um, you cannot take any official result, referendum elections, local national in the Western world in general at face value. You must consider that it's part of the manipulation, not just the very fact that they're hosting this referendum, how the campaign was conducted, Who's for and who's against it? That's okay. You keep an eye open for what's likely. What do they, what do they want me to think? And you think you're thinking, well, I'm going to be smarter than them, but you need to take it through to the end, which is that the actual result may not be anywhere near what actually happened. You know, uh, it, the same goes for elections. A lot of people in Spain this week are disappointed because Podemos did not do as well as everyone thought they would in the elections. Well, here's the obvious suggestion. The Spanish elites rigged the elections. Keep it in mind. Don't get upset and try to analyze the world based on what they tell you. A fact is, they throw elections with abandon these days. This is a post-9-11 world. Do you think they're honest with democracy? No, they rig everything, left, right, and center. So don't Don't get pulled in by their BS.
1: Right. Let's go to uh,
2: Brent. What do you say, Harrison? Sure, Elon. Uh, did you you had one story you wanted to cover? Uh, do you yeah. want to do that really quick, or do you want to do it after a, a cop roundup?
3: Let's just do it really quickly because I, I think it's um, it it speaks to the theme of today's show, which was uh, all of these kinds of major geopolitical um, switches that we're seeing here, and basically th- as the story goes. Uh, Washington reportedly wants Moscow to agree to pressure the Assad regime to stop bombing certain Syrian rebels the United States does not consider terrorists. The Washington Post reported that under the the proposal, the U.S. would not give Russia the exact locations of these groups, but would specify geographic zones that would be safe from the Assad regime's aerial assaults. Meanwhile, the head of the Russian general staff, Valery Jarosimov said that Washington still hasn't provided a list of groups it considers terrorists, allowing jihadists to regroup and escape Russian led air raids on their positions. Um, And what's most interesting about this, I think is, you know, when asked about uh, the offer, um, Dmitry Peskov, the the presidential spokesman said, I won't comment on it. And uh, that, that not commenting on it to me reflects a certain um place that Russia has come to in trying to work with the u s on um, partnering up and destroying ISIS. and that is enough bullshit this is total bullshit uh your your offers are are meaningless you're obviously in a desperate situation you're still trying to maintain this war against assad uh y- you know you say you want to assist us in in destroying ISIS, but you're, you're not, uh, you're not giving us specifics. Um, So uh, I think like that coupled with what we've heard in the past few weeks about uh, Iran, Hezbollah, Iraq, um, Russia, Syria, getting together two or three times to discuss how they're going to kind of end this conflict and, and, uh, and just go for it. And, really signals um, a kind of uh, closing in on on eradicating terrorism in in Syria and the us is just desperate and stupid uh, in its response and um, so I think we're I think we're pretty much seeing um, a new kind of uh, approach here or at least a more intense approach and and a, less of a willingness to indulge the U.S. Um, in the way it has been uh, by Russia.
2: All yeah. right. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. So now... Um, okay. It's time.
4: You Where's your oh, warrant? Oh, right. warrant,
0: warrant. Warrant. warrant? Show me the, For the warrant.
5: For
2: another police state roundup. You don't need a warrant. Yes, did. Oh, yes.
5: Wow. They just said they did not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now
4: some kind of funny thing okay, okay. there's
2: nothing funny about Wait! okay then stop smiling right, right. Your head. Good. Good now. Brent how are you there hey how's it going good fill us in what's been going hey, on Brent.
5: uh know, a lot this week um no pretty, yeah um first off this story really upset me um Uh, we carried it on SOT. It's, uh, titled lowest of the low TSA beats disabled teen coming home from brain surgery. So this was a girl, um, she has special needs. She's been treated for, uh, some sort of brain abnormality since she was a small child. And she was coming home, uh, flying out of, uh, uh, Memphis airport in Tennessee And, um, this girl, Hannah Cohen, she's 19 years old. She set off a metal detector and they kind of, you know, labeled her for further screening. Um, but Hannah has, um, she's partially deaf. She's partially blind. Um, she's not completely in control of her physical movements. Uh, she's easily confused and she didn't understand what was going on. And the mother was trying to tell the TSA agents, you know, all this stuff about her. Um, but they just were keeping them separate and she couldn't really get close to the people that were interacting with her daughter. And, um, you know, she got frightened and confused. She didn't know what was going on. And she tried to kind of like get away from the TSA agents. And because of that, they violently took her to the ground. She just finished having, you know, treatment for this, this brain tumor and they, they hit her head on the ground and then she was bleeding everywhere. Um, and you know, she, they couldn't even explain anything. She was arrested. She was booked in a jail. Ultimately, the charges were dropped. Um, but, you know, here we are with somebody who's obviously, you know, like one of the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society who should be, you know, treated gently wherever she goes. And she just gets, you know, beaten and bloodied because she didn't understand what was happening. Um, it just really, really upsetting. I mean, if this can happen to a, you know, a mentally disabled person at an airport, it really it can happen to anybody. Um, and then there's uh, another story about uh, this woman from Houston, Texas, uh, Trinisa Corley, this African-American woman. She was <clears throat> running out to the store to get medicine for her sick mother when she was detained by police for allegedly running a stop sign. Um, within a few minutes of you know, being stopped, Um, cops basically stripped her in this public parking lot. Um, and one female officer, you know, went up into her vagina in search of marijuana. Apparently the the cop that pulled over thought that he had smelled marijuana. And for that, you know, this woman was basically raped in public. Um, they never found any marijuana. Um, no drug drugs were ever found. um, they uh, released her, and, you know, no charges were dropped, and now she's suing, um, suing the department, which, you know, ultimately, taxpayers are going to have to pay for that. Um, <clears throat> then I have a whole series of stories about police beating people for literally almost nothing. Uh, Los Angeles County, these, this family was at a, uh, a county fair, just, you know, going out to the fair, and... Um <clears throat> This, uh, this kid who was just filming, but the police got, you know, um, approached and then, you know, they beat him. Um, somebody else started videotaping, uh, once this went on and you can see in the video clearly, this kid is like 16 years old, I think. Um, he was not doing, you know, anything wrong and they just, you know, slammed, he's, he's literally standing kind of like defiant. Um, and, uh. Just like standing, put his chin out, and the cop just like winds back and slams him in the face once, slams him in the face twice, slams him in the face a third time. And this kid just like, you know, stumbles back and goes down on the ground. Um, somebody else recorded the video, uh, recorded video when that, that happened. Um, and then there's another story about a cop smashing a woman's phone and punching her in the face. And he was charged, but all the charges of him against him were dropped. And his attorney was quoted as saying, it's a great day for justice, and that justice was served. Um, basically, what happened here was that um, this uh, <clears throat> officer uh, in Pennsylvania, it's my home state, um, pulled this woman over um, for not signaling before turning into a parking spot um, which is not something that a lot of people do anyway, but there was a surveillance video that found that she did in fact signal when she was pulling into the parking spot. Um, the cop then, you know, goes up to her and, you know, uh, says something about how her plates don't match the car that she's driving, you know, saying that the vehicle comes back as a Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi, but you're driving a Honda. Um, when in fact they were in a Mitsubishi Mirage, um, the, uh, the woman got out of the car, you know, went around the front of the car, showed him, the, like, the Mitsubishi single, um, didn't really register with him. And, you know, she had, <clears throat> when she realized this was going downhill, she pulled out her phone and started video to, you know, recording what was going on. Um, officer grabbed the phone out of her hand, smashed it on the ground, um, and then punched her in the face for no reason. He also lied and said that she had punched him first. Um, but again, video came out and showed that, you know, she was telling the truth. Um, so basically everything that this officer had said about this woman was a lie from, you know, why he started interacting with them to why he pulled her out of the vehicle to, you know, why it resulted in a physical altercation. And, you know, this woman, uh, let's see, she was, she spent three days in jail. She was charged with assault, harassment, resisting arrest. Um, the boyfriend who was in the car with her was charged with disorderly conduct and, res- and resisting arrest, even though the video shows that he doesn't basically he doesn't do anything. He doesn't even get out of the car. Um, so it's just unbelievable. Uh, this guy gets totally you know gets off scot free um, mm-hmm. after brutally beating a woman for for literally nothing. She did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see there's a story about an innocent Muslim woman in Chicago who was tackled kicked, and strip searched by cops for running to her train um, this was uh this actually happened last year um but the uh the trial was just the the verdict the trial came out recently um and of course she was <clears throat> um, she was uh, dismissed all the charges were all dismissed um she had she was wearing a hijab so you know she's wearing the the head covering and she was running to her train, you know, she was late trying to make a train and, um, the cops, you know, tried to hail her yelling at her to stop. Um, there's video of the incident as well. Um, she doesn't stop. So then they, they grab her, uh, violently hold her back, um, pull her aside and then, you know, pull off her hijab, you know, searching her. Like I guess they, I don't know cause she's Muslim. She must be carrying a bomb or something. Um, they strip search her, you know, like on the platform basically. Um, which, you know, anybody who's familiar with Islam, this is like one of the most like huge violations to this poor woman's religion. Um, you know, being naked in public, they cover up everything, uh, even their face. So (laughs) to do this to them, it's, it's basically torture. I mean, it's torture to anybody, but to, to somebody who's, um, who's Muslim, it's even, it's even worse. um, and then they were just asking her all kinds of weird questions, you know, why she's wearing clothes that cover her body. Like they don't get it, I guess. I don't know. She was strip search, videographed. Yeah, strip search videographed. At the same time, men were allowed to see her naked. It's the ultimate horror that you can do to a Muslim woman, um, said one of the local uh, Muslim community leaders. Um, there was no accountability. I'm pretty sure um, most
1: Christian women wouldn't be happy about uh,
5: being stripped naked in public either. It's exactly, I mean, it's just like these police just view people like, like animals, you know, they can come up, they can treat you any way they want and, you know, release you back into the wild and they face no repercussions whatsoever. Um, there's another story here about, uh, a man in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, he was asking, um, an officer, um, who was, uh, had a vehicle stopped, um, <clears throat> guy pulled out his camera and asked the, the cop for his name and badge number which in America it's something you can do you can always ask a police officer for their name and badge number and they are supposed to give it automatically 100% of the time um and in this case they uh they, they brutally assault the guy um there was another guy that they had beaten this. apparently they were this guy was you know videotaping another a traffic stop that he had come upon and you know when he asks these guys for ID, um, that's when they jump him. So it's just unbelievable. Incident began when, uh, this guy, uh, his last name is Cepeda, pulled into a parking lot of a local pizzeria as a police van pulled into the lot behind him with its lights on, uh, prior to police exiting their vehicle, Cepeda began recording the encounter, um, with all but the end of the interaction being re- captured by him. Another individual captured the portion, um, that he was unable to record, um, so it just shows that you know this guy is trying to get this guy, Cepedito, is trying to get him, the officer to identify himself, um, and the cop you know basically ignores him. Um he hands his license plate to the police officer, or his license to the police officer. Um and you know, both men, you know, kind of reissued you know their demands to uh to, to ask for their name and badge number. Um they asked for you know to speak to a supervisor. Um, and it's just unreal. This guy smashes the dude's phone, um, pulls somebody, pulls him out of the vehicle, slams him to the ground. Guy's not resisting. Um, finally the paramedic showed up and the guy was taken to the hospital. Um, but it's just unreal how many of these stories there are. Uh, there's, an, there's another one here. Um, <clears throat> crazy cop accuses innocent woman of stealing her own car. Oh, that's, that's the one. Yeah. That was the one I read earlier. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Um, then there's another story. This comes from Pasco County, Florida of an army veteran who has schizophrenia. He was in a Pasco County jail and they, you know, he was having like a, an episode. He was screaming crazy things. He was naked in his cell. Um, and the cops, uh, these, these guards at the jail, um, wanted to come in and, and search his cell for some reason. Um, and they were trying to get him to put his hands through the little slot so they could handcuff him. But, you know, obviously he's, he's crazy. He's non-compliant. So they pull out a 12-gauge shotgun, which was loaded with a, a Nova round, which is a explosive concussive round designed to, it's like a flashbang, basically. You shoot it to kind of serve as a distraction. You're not supposed to shoot it at people or animals. Um, and they hit the guy square in the groin, you know, and he's naked. He had like three months of, uh, surgery and being in and out of hospitals before he was able to like function normally again. And Lord knows what kind of damage that does. Um, But it's just, they, I can't believe this. Some of these stories its just unreal, whether it's on the streets or in the jails. um, They just, you know, they just treat people like, like nothing. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And the funny thing about this was that there was video evidence of what happened in this jail. Um, There was a camera recording. And there were six officers involved and all the six officers had matching statements, which were complete fabrications. Um, there's no congruency between the video and what the officer said. Um, even some of the statements from the officer statements look like they were, you know, copied. (laughs) They couldn't even like, you know, cheat by coming up with your own words. They had to use the same exact phrasing, some of the descriptions. Um, it's just unbelievable. And then, uh, you know, it's Fourth of July weekend here. Um, I saw a story on SOT, just kind of related, that the, uh, the police are out in full force buzzing around in their helicopters with their automatic weapons. Um, I haven't gone outside yet this weekend. I've just been hanging out, taking care of my dog, and cleaning my apartment. But um, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting to see there's these – this uh, counter unit, which is like 525 specially trained officers that are trained with high powered weapons. And they have all these kind of, uh, bomb sniffing dogs and they have a headquarters, which is somewhere at an undisclosed location where feeds from 9,000 surveillance cameras are piped in displayed. So they've got their, uh, their little police state <clears throat> apparatus already set up and going. Hmm. Um, and there was another story uh it makes me wonder you know how much of like the crazy police and like the crazy civilian thing is actually kind of all tied in' so there was a, mm-hmm. recently a story about this uh this model who um got naked in Times Square and was like yeah. shouting for Donald Trump. I don't know if you guys heard about this, yeah, yeah, but it just seems to be there's this, people getting naked and doing crazy is like a thing I don't know. What's happening? (laughs) Yeah, it's not good Whatever whatever happened. Uh, You know what made me think about? I was thinking about this. uh, There was another story on site about this huge aurora on the top of Jupiter. Yeah, that that picture, but it looks really. And then the sun has also been super quiet. There's no sunspots. There's all this weird electrical stuff happening in the solar system, and it's just. I you know I can't you know tie it together, but it's just all that's happening at the same time and you can't, you know, coincidence, maybe, (laughs) I don't know.
2: Yeah. All right. All right. Well, 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 Brent, stay on the line, first of all, but, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for that roundup. And Uh as usual, uh, geez, you know, it's the kind of stuff you wish you wouldn't hear and it wouldn't happen, but, but we have to. There it is. So um, I think we'll I think we'll end it there. We went a bit over for today, but that's just because we had a lot to say. In fact, we didn't get to everything. Um, there's just one story that we didn't get to. I'll just give the the, the name of the article on SOT. It's the best of the web right now. Um, I just recommend reading um, the article by Alexander Mercuris. Italy, France, Germany, Europe's anti-Russian sanctions appear to be coming to an end. <clears throat> just a little update on um, the the um, the European position seems to be slightly changing on Russian, Russian sanctions even though they've been extended at least to the end of 2016 but uh, check that out for more we run st- we've got even more stories on SOT and I think we'll end it there so uh, thanks everyone for listening thanks for, to Stephen for calling in thanks to Brent for the SOT roundup and thanks guys Neil, Joe, Eli right.
1: no problem
2: thanks guys yeah and we'll, we'll see you all next week with another show Hopefully, well, we might be doing an, in- an interview, but um, we'll just let you know a few days before uh, before we go live. So, everyone, take care. Thanks, everyone. Take care.
1: Have a good evening. Bye
2: bye.